Today's scripture reading is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The word of the Lord. True knowledge of God is born out of obedience. That's a quote. Uh, who, who said it? We like to play this game at the beginning of each sermon. Who said it? Yes. G.K. Chesterton. Oh, it was, a, it was a trick question this week. It was actually uh, John Calvin said that. So, uh, but, but, so that breaks our long-running streak of beginning sermons with G.K. Chesterton quotes. But I appreciate you, Henry, for answering that this morning. Like, way to go there. You had a 99% chance of being right, but I pulled the old switcheroo on you. All right. So this morning, you know, a lot of you are here for the, the, the first time today for this special occasion. Don't worry. Uh, uh, you can drop in. Each sermon uh, in this series stands on its own. But we've been doing a sermon series on discipleship following um, a book written by the late, great uh, Presbyterian minister, and he's most famous, uh, Eugene Peterson, most famous for his message translation of, of the Bible. But before he did the message, Eugene Peterson wrote this book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he was, it was called, and then the subtitle was Discipleship in an Instant Society. Looking at, at the, the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalms 120 through 134, as a songbook for the pilgrimage of faith. And so these psalms collectively uh, in, in, in the Bible were used by pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for the great festivals. And so Peterson says, just as the Israelites centuries before sang these songs, he says, we as Christians can sing them again and learn what they have to teach us, the virtues, the characteristics, um, uh, the features, the beliefs of what it means to follow Jesus. And so today we get to Psalm 132, and the great theme that we're tracing here is obedience, which, which makes sense because the book is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Now, obedience is one of those words that uh, has a lot of negative connotations, uh, particularly for uh, adults. You know, it probably has negative connotations for children, too, but, um, you know, who asked them? And so... Uh, 
You know, we associate obedience with, with children and we expect them to obey because as adults we have authority over them and we know what's best. And so I tell my kids to do things, you know, uh, bust your dishes, clean up your room, just go, please, I'm carrying these plates, can you open the door? And, you know, they'll object or they'll whine, and I just say, I say, obey me. Won't you just obey me? I'm trying to teach you to be a functional human being, responsible, capable of eventually, at some point, hopefully, going off and living on your own in the world. TBD on that one. We'll get back to that one in, in a few years. I have faith. I have faith, though. All right? You know, uh, what other uh, creatures do we expect to obey? I immediately thought of dogs, right? We take them, to, they call it obedience school, obedience training, in order to get them under control so we can take them out into public and they will at least, you know, theoretically sit and stay. So we teach dogs to obey. And then we associate obedience with the law. You know, obey the rules of the road. Obey an officer's commands. But we're, you know, 21st century American adults, and so we bristle at this idea of obedience. We value the idea that we are free, uh, autonomous, you know, human beings. We're individuals. And so this very concept of obedience, it sounds constraining, infantilizing, authoritarian, domineering, and disempowering. In other words, the very concept of obedience is one where I think we see the Bible at its most countercultural. And obedience at its core, it's about placing ourselves under an authority and committing to live in a particular way, even when we don't necessarily want to, when maybe it would be easier or more convenient for us to do something else. So why obey? For two reasons that we'll explore through this psalm. The first one is that it provides us with a solid foundation for life rooted especially in God's past. And the second reason we're going to see to be obedient is, is that it's because it's from that solid foundation that we can live faithfully and creatively into the future. To use a, a metaphor, obedience is about growing down deep roots in order that, that we can grow up then later into whatever direction God would have us to grow. Uh, Amy and I won the lottery a couple of years ago, uh, the Minneapolis tree lottery, um, so it was not that exciting, but we got a nice tree for a reasonable price, and so that's always exciting when you win the lottery. And so um, we won a Kentucky coffee tree, uh, and, and we planted it in our backyard, and you know, it was not much to look at uh, when we first got it, sort of a stick um, with a couple of branches on it. We planted it in our backyard, and it's grown, you know, a little bit over the last couple of years, but what it's doing right now is it's putting its roots down deep into the ground so that it can get the nourishment that it needs from, you know, the soil and the sun, and that at some point, it's just going to take off. And over the course of a couple of years, you know, what has been slow and plotting, it's just going to shoot up several feet to this beautiful shade tree that is going to um, provide our backyard with years and years of shade. So we're excited for that. But right now, we're just waiting for those roots to establish themselves and grow down deep. And that's what the first part of obedience is about. It's about putting down roots so that later we can grow. And Jesus talks about the importance of obedience at several crucial places in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, he comes to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
you know, what many people regard as the greatest, you know, moral, ethical teaching in human history. And Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, in other words, whoever hears these words of mine and obeys them, is like a wise builder building their house upon the rock. The rains came, the winds blew, the storm crashed against it, but it didn't fall because it had a solid foundation. And the foolish builder is the one who heard Jesus' words and didn't put them into practice, didn't obey them. And when the rains came, the winds blew, the storm crashed against that house, it fell. And mighty, Jesus says, was the fall. Because it had no foundation. It was like a tree with weak roots. And so if we want a life of faith that can last, that can withstand the storms of life, we've got to build on a strong foundation. And that foundation is obedience to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus says his very last words then in Matthew, the Great Commission, you know, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the next thing he says is, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And we tend to think of obedience as this boring, dull, constraining thing. You know, no fun allowed. But what we see when when we look at Jesus and we look at Psalm 132 and David's own history of obedience, that that obedience has a a rollicking, kind of swashbuckling character to it. Obedience has a history. In verse 2 of of our psalm, it says that David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. So David made promises to God that he intended to keep no matter what hardships he faced. And there were hardships aplenty. And so obedience is about us making and keeping our promises to God, even when it's hard to do so. Obedience is keeping our commitments to God to do the hard stuff in the hard circumstances. So David makes this commitment to God. He says, I'm going to build you a house, a a temple in Jerusalem. And the story behind this is, is the story of Psalm 132. It's the story of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant was a, a special box that was built to contain uh, the law, the, the tablets that Moses received on Mount Sinai. It was made of wood and was covered in gold, and it had a lid of pure gold that was covered with cherubim, these angelic figures on top of it, and between their wings was, was the mercy seat where the Israelites believed that God, God's presence was most intense. And so the ark was this living reminder of God's presence with them at these crucial moments uh, of their collective life, God's presence with them in the wilderness and God's guidance of them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And so their ark was their reminder that in order for God to be present with them, they needed to be obedient, obedient to these words that were contained within it. And the Israelites, they carried the ark into the promised land, and, and when they hit the Jordan River with the ark, the river, the, the river divided. And when they marched around Jericho, they, they put the ark at the lead, and, and, and the walls came a-tumbling down. And so there was this powerful history of, of, of the ark and what it meant to have God present with them. But then a funny thing happened. The Israelites forgot what the ark was for, and eventually they forgot about the ark. And so instead of being a reminder of, of God's commitment to them and their need to be faithful, it became this sort of talisman, this good luck charm that they took with them into battle against the Philistines, whether that was a good idea or not. And eventually the Philistines capture the ark and 
they hold it for about three months, but all sorts of bad things start happening to them. The ark is too hot to handle. You know, too many bad things are happening, and so they give it back to the Israelites, and the Israelites go, you know, it hasn't been working out for us so great with this ark either, so let's go stash it sort of in storage and forget about it. And so they put it in some obscure town, and it was all but forgotten. But when David became king, he saw that this wasn't right. Right? How could God's people be faithful if the ark was stashed away? And so he made this promise, this vow, this oath he swore to God to bring it to Jerusalem and to build a house for it. David would bring the ark to Jerusalem, and it would be up to his son Solomon to finish the task of building a temple. But the first half of Psalm 132, it's a song remembering when David finally did this, when he made this vow and this promise and he kept it. And it's about the, the joyous procession of bringing the ark to Jerusalem for the first time when he, when he was obedient, when he kept his promise. And so as the pilgrims journeyed and they sang this song on their way to Jerusalem, they were placing themselves again in, in the footsteps of David and the people of God at the time when they had marched with the ark to Jerusalem for the first time. They were singing this song to remember and to reenact and to place themselves in that same story that celebrated God's presence and their commitment to live obediently, to keep their promises. And when Eugene Peterson is reflecting on this, he says, the history of the ark was for the Hebrews a, a kind of theological handbook. It's not just an object. It's not just a symbol. It, it's a theological handbook. It, it is contained. There's whole story and meaning contained within it. It provided an account of the presence of God among the people. Its history, the story surrounding it, showed the importance of having God with you and the danger of trying to use God or carry God around like they did later when they just used it as a good luck charm in battle with the Philistine. And so the ark itself was important in that it emphasized that God was with his people and that God was over and above his people, for God was quite obviously not in the box. The ark was the symbol, not the reality. And the psalm, Psalm 132, doesn't retell this history. It only remembers the history. There's only enough here to trigger the historical memories of the people. For the rich symbolism of the ark was everyday stuff to them. Its extensive and intricate history was common knowledge, much as the story of Jesus is to Christians. With the promptings from the psalm, this story, it's reactivated. It comes to life for them again. And this history that it reactivates for them, it's important for without it, we are at the mercy of whims. And so memory, especially sacred memory, is a data bank we use to evaluate our position and to make decisions. With a biblical memory, we have 2,000 years of experience from which to make, off, make the off-the-cuff responses that are required each day in the life of faith. And if we are going to live adequately and maturely as the people of God, we need more data to work from than our own experience can give us. What would we think of a pollster who issued a definitive report on how the American people felt about a new television special if we discovered later that he had interviewed only one person who had seen only 10 minutes of the program? We would dismiss rightly the conclusions as frivolous, yet that is exactly the kind of evidence that too many Christians accept as the final truth about many much more important matters. Matters such as answered prayer, God's judgment, Christ's forgiveness, eternal salvation. The only person they consult is themselves. And the only experience they evaluate is the most recent 10 minutes. But we need other experiences 
the community of experience of brothers and sisters in the church, the centuries of experience of our biblical ancestors, a Christian who has David in his bones, Jeremiah in his bloodstream, Paul in his fingertips, and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little value to put on his own momentary feelings and experiences of the past week. Obedience is rooted in a knowledge of the history of God's ways with his people. Obedience is us learning from this history and putting it into practice so we can do the hard stuff in the hard circumstances. Without obedience, we waste our time reinventing the wheel of going down rabbit holes and trails that only bring us to cul-de-sacs. And sadly, the consequences of this are, are, are common, too obvious. You know, I think of someone I knew years ago, years and years ago, and they had grown up in the church, but they had wandered away, and for whatever person, reason, this person decided that, you know, they, they sort of knew better. They had to go their own way. And so he found himself in a situation where he had an inappropriate relationship with someone who was not his wife, and she found out, and trust vanished. But you know, instead of like saying, all right, this is an opportunity, a new chance to sort of get back to what I know is right, what I was raised to know is right, they decided to sort of try some new arrangement, you know, an open relationship, and that didn't work either. And at the end of the day, this person was back living in his parents' basement, thinking, what happened? You know, and at that point, it's a good opportunity to ask myself, what road have I chosen in life? What decisions have I made that have led me as an adult person to be living in my parents' basement again? It didn't have to be that way. And I do believe that this entire story would have been different. Not that it wouldn't have been without challenges, but it would have been easier and different if he had learned the well-worn paths of grace that lead to life. If he had built on a solid foundation rather than deciding, you know what, I think I'm the one who can do it with sand. How different could his life have been? And we only need to think of the old times in our lives when we've been disobedient. And I think, why did we try to go with sand when the solid, hard stuff was right there? See, obedience is what allows us to grow down deep so that we can grow up out and wide. And that's the second point of the psalm. That obedience provides us with the ability to live uh, faithfully and creatively into the future that God provides for us. Obedience, it propels us out into this world and into the great unknowns and great new situations of life. The first part of the psalm is about the solid foundation. So it's sort of like the starting blocks. And the second part of the psalm is like the sprinter using those blocks to then run the race. And you know if you've ever run a race that you run a lot faster if you've got something solid behind you when you start running. And so all the verses, all the verbs in in verses 11 through 18, they have God as their subject and the future as their tense. It says that God will not turn back from his promises. He will set a descendant of David on the throne. He will dwell in Zion. He will abundantly bless her. He will satisfy her poor. He will close her priests with salvation. He will make the crown to shine. Will, 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 the future. And so when we're obedient to God, the future is filled with nothing but his glorious promises, all of which find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Peterson says, for obedience is not a stodgy plodding in the ruts of religion. 
It is a hopeful race towards God's promises. The second half of the psalm has a propellant quality to it. Psalm 132 cultivates a hope that gives wings to obedience. I love that phrase. It cultivates a hope that gives wings to obedience. Psalm 132 gives us the strength to stand and then the willingness to leap because the past is rooted in God's grace and the future is filled with God's promises and the way from the one to the other is the way of obedience, of keeping our promises because God has kept his and will keep his. It's like marathon training, which uh, several of us are in, the, in the congregation are engaged in right now. You really see the importance of obedience when you're training for a marathon. Uh, Not to humble brag. It's not a humble brag. It's just a reality. I ran 10 miles yesterday. Did I want to do that? No. That's actually the last thing that I wanted to do. And I thought I was going to find a way to weasel out of it because I had something in the morning. And and then I come home. And Amy's like, you want to go for your run now? And I said, yes. And I was lying. I did not want to go for a run. I thought she was going to go, oh, yeah, you don't have time for your run now. I was going to be like, yes, oh, my gosh. That's such, such good news. Uh, but I was obedient to my training plan because I've been told by World Vision that doing this has, if I do this, that same plan is what allowed thousands of other people to do the same thing that I want to do, which is reach the finish line. And so I won't be able to do that if I don't keep my commitment to do this plan. And it's not about the 10-mile run. It's about the 26.2 that are out there. But in order to get there, I've got to be faithful in this now. In order to do what I can't do currently, I've got to do what I can do now. And as a a congregation, we we actually have some challenges. We have some hard stuff that are going to be facing us in this fall. We're talking about a capital campaign to actually make this building accessible, and that's a scary thing because uh, nothing like that has happened around here on that scale since 1953. You know, this part of the church we're in was built in 1924, remodeled in the 60s, so that's where the cool light fixtures come from. You know, yeah, look up. Uh, there, There weren't no ceiling fans in 1924. Uh, but, you know, it looked much the same. And, and then in 1953, folks were able to add an education wing. But that was 66 years ago. And so for whatever reason, in that past 66 years, that next obedient step to make this a place where it doesn't matter your physical condition, you can come worship here, that step hasn't been taken. But we get the invitation to be like David and to... Uh, uh, find what's important but then been forgotten and celebrate it as we bring it back to the center of attention. And that what I think that maybe we've forgotten is that God's presence and power are bigger than us and our circumstances and our limited capabilities and resources and even fears about what if we can't pull it off. And so our obedience then is rooted in the truths we see in Scripture that, that God can do a lot with a little, that God uses imperfect people to do great things, and that God has already provided us with everything we need to serve him. And because we're rooted in those truths and that reality, that's why we can take a leap of faith into the future, into the great unknown, trusting that the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Because obedience isn't about God, you know, putting us in a cage. It's about him giving us wings so that we can fly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.